Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Genesis, a few short verses. We're really focusing on the last verse in this text, Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. We turn now to the New Testament passage from the Gospel of Matthew, continuing our service, our series through Matthew, chapter 8, Matthew 8, verses 18, and I'll read to verse 27 for context. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he had got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. They went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let us pray for his blessing as we open it. O Lord our God, may the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth, be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. For this is the very sacred scripture that you have given us as our heritage. Teach us from it and speak to us that we may grow in our most holy faith together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to be looking at the first part of the Matthew passage. This is actually a third, um, uh, divided into thirds. We already uh, talked about the first three episodes in this chapter. The first three episodes were the leper healing at the beginning of chapter 8, and then the centurion and his servant in the middle part of the thirds here, and then finally, Peter's mother-in-law. And it is striking how when you look at those episodes in the first part of chapter 8, it culminates in, chap- in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, that he would take upon himself our illnesses and bear our diseases. And that's what Jesus was demonstrating in those healings and why he often touched the people that he was healing at that time. Um, and I, I would invite you to think about this uh, episode also 
in light of what Jesus had taught us through the Beatitudes about his people, people who are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. He had focused at the first Beatitude, this is in chapter 5, Matthew 5, I think it's verse 3, where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I would suggest to you that if you want to know what poor in spirit means, Matthew is showing us that here. Think about that leper who really has no resources whatsoever. And he's cut off from the people of God. He is, has a skin disease which is so burdensome and leaves him separated from his family. Poor in spirit. Lord, if you're willing, you can cleanse me. What does he have to offer to Jesus? Nothing. He offers him a prayer. He offers him faith. And then what does Jesus say? I'm willing. No no hesitation. I am willing. Be cleansed. He's an heir of the kingdom of heaven, poor in spirit. What about the centurion? Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. I don't know if you know about centurions, but they're kind of like special forces. These are serious operators, okay? Uh, these, are, these are people who take their job in the army very seriously uh, in hand-to-hand combat. This, is a, this, is a, this would be a scary guy if you met him. And yet here he says, I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. Poor in spirit. A man who was humble before his Lord. I know you can just give a word. And Jesus says, oh, that's, you're right, I can, and he does. And then the mother-in-law, what does she offer? She's lying with a fever burning up. She doesn't even ask to be healed, as far as we know. He goes in, he takes her by the hand, he lifts her up. And she's raised from her burning fever. Poor in spirit. If you want to know what poor in spirit means, here are three examples. This is, this is what it looks like. This is, this, these are the people who enter into an inheritance of the new creation, life abundantly, living forever in the presence of God in a new heavens and a new earth with glory and so many interesting things to do that we will never get bored. This is, this is something we can't even conceive of. But that is our inheritance. Poor in spirit is the qualification. People who have faith in Jesus. So that's what we've seen so far. Now, Matthew is going to do three more little episodes that have this kind of unity to them. And this is the prelude. So we're looking at the prelude to three more episodes. The episodes are the storm at sea. We read that. Then you have demoniacs across the uh, Sea of Galilee, and then a paralytic in chapter 9, first part. This is where chapter division may not be the best, which is all invented. Don't worry. Matthew didn't invent those. It's all added on later. So he, uh, you really go into chapter 9 to find the end of these three little uh, episodes. So why do I point that out? 
when you're working through Matthew as slowly as we are, it's hard to lose sight of the big picture. This is a big interconnected gospel with an unfolding storyline. And if you were to sit down and listen to the whole thing, you would, you would hear it better. You would see the connection and the development. One of the things, for example, that you're going to see soon is little, little uh, things that Matthew will say that he develops later. So I'll be pointing that out. You know, he'll say something and develop it later. But he is now developing this poor in spirit. He just concluded that little section, I believe, to show you that, to, to see it. So he has this plan in mind in his gospel to give you this unfolding story in, the his, in, in telling the history of Jesus. Uh, and that's what you have here. So let's look at our passage in verse 18. In verse 18 is the opening of the larger section that I read. Uh, he he uh, is crowded. It actually says these crowds were crowding him. Uh, and we're not really told why that happens in Matthew, but in Mark, the parallel is clear. The, uh, man, the leper up in the beginning of chapter 8 in Mark's version says, uh, that, the le- that the leper was told not to tell people, except for the priest, you know. And then we're told immediately he blabbed everybody. He's a blabber. Uh, and he, he went out and talked it up so much that Jesus couldn't go into town. It was too, it, too crowded. People were, were flocking to him and hindering his uh, progress. Uh, he had many places to go, and people were just crowding him and demanding his time uh, And so that he actually spent more time in the desert because he couldn't, you know, wilderness places, uh, so that he he couldn't go into towns because of that. So he's he's feeling crowded here. Uh, And in verse 18, he's he's up in a town in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. I'll get into this more next week. We're going to do the second half of this text next week. But uh, Sea of Galilee is shaped kind of like a pear, and from your vantage point, Capernaum, where he's at, is up in the uh, northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And it's, it says that Jesus gave orders. He commanded that they go to the other side. Uh, we'll talk about the dimensions of that and all next week. But it means they have to go across this big lake, this uh, Sea of Galilee, uh, and uh, He gives orders to do that. So the second half of our text is actually them on the boat making this uh, circuit across the Sea of Galilee. So verse 18 introduces that, uh, and then uh, verses 23 and following give you that journey. But But until then, you have these two people come up to him. And so Matthew kind of pauses in the story to tell us about uh, these two people coming up to him and how Jesus responds to them. So that's what we're looking at today. Verse 19, it says, a scribe came up to him. Now, the way it says this is a little unusual. Um, it actually says one scribe came up to him. Um, it's a little unusual. Uh, not, not the normal way you say a scribe, but one scribe came up to him. And so the implication is just one single scribe. Now, there's 
there's a history to this and why Matthew says it that way. He implies there should have been more scribes saying this to Jesus, I, I believe. You know, just one scribe says this, but others should have. How do we know that? Well, you read Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, this unfolding story, remember? Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus' uh, birth is announced through the Magi, they come to uh, Herod, the king, uh, and the the Magi says, where is he who's born king of the Jews? And, you know, Herod doesn't know, obviously, couldn't care less. Herod is no, you know, there's a famous story from the Roman emperor about Herod. It says, it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Because he didn't kill the pigs, but he killed the sons. Uh, so this, he's, he's a well-known nasty feller. So this is, this is uh, Herod has to ask somebody where this king of the Jews was born. And he asks the high priests and the scribes. And they get it right. These are biblical scholars. And they get it right. And they say, in Bethlehem. And then they quote it. They quote the prophet, why the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. So the scribes in Jerusalem knew the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And these magi are testifying that he is born in Bethlehem. But only the magi go. All of Jerusalem knows, we're told in Matthew 2. All of Jerusalem knows about the birth of their Messiah, but only the Magi go, not the Jerusalem, not the scribes. The scribes don't go to inquire about this. Their Messiah is born according to Scripture, and they know it, but they don't go to investigate and to worship him. They don't have any interest in him. They have their own agenda. That's, that's why, I believe, we're told only one scribe comes up to Jesus. And he says, I'll follow you. Just one. But there's an implication. Others should have flocked to Jesus. Now, here's, here's where Matthew, in, in back to chapter 8 now, in verse 19, here's where Matthew uses some words very carefully. Notice what the scribe says. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He doesn't say Lord like other people. See, the other people previous in chapter 8 have called him Lord, Sir. But it's, it's a title of honor where they recognize he's their senior. Look at that centurion. I'm not worthy for you, Lord, to come into my home. You are the great Lord, and who am I that you should come into my home? This scribe doesn't say that. He says, teacher. And by calling him teacher, this scribe is lining out what Jesus can do for him. You can teach me the golden rule. You can teach me the law of God. I will allow you to teach me certain things. And I'll follow you to that end. The scribe is now telling Jesus what he can do for him. And that's why he gets the answer he gets. Jesus doesn't take orders from anybody else. 
about what he can do for people. He's going to do something beyond their wildest imagination. He's going to Jerusalem, we're told later, to be persecuted, to be mocked, to be taken before the Roman governors by the high priests and the scribes in Jerusalem. They're they're said to be the ones who are part of the instigation to put Jesus to death and to murder him. That's, that's, That's what happens. It's because they had an agenda for him. He didn't fit their agenda, so he has to go. This scribe is doing that with Jesus. Jesus has this to say to people. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. This is his demands upon his followers. You have to give me everything. I demand the kind of loyalty and sacrificial love that God demands of you. This is, he's more than a teacher now. Oh yeah, he is a teacher. He's the best teacher ever. But when he starts teaching people, he's saying things, end of chapter 7, this is, he's teaching with authority, not like our scribes. I'm quoting that verse, the end of chapter 7 of Matthew. Not like the scribes. He teaches in a way that only God can teach. In a way that, whew, we just sang that. The one who lives in sapphire halls. If you want to see what Jesus left behind, the Son of God in incarnation, you read, you read Revelation 4. This crystalline sea of gorgeous beauty filled with sparkling gems and glory beyond compare with a whole host dressed in white, singing and praising in a joyful song before the Lord. And that's what he left. And here he is in human, real human garb, as we sang. He he came down for us. And he says to this this, uh, scribe, verse 20, I think the man... I think the scribe would have been better off if he were a leper. He might have been more humble. He might have been more poor in spirit. Verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you come to Jesus to get ahead in the world, you will be disappointed. He doesn't offer that to you because he didn't take it for himself. Do you think he's going to give you something that he didn't have for himself? He shows his power. He could have commanded, and the angels of God would have built him an earthly palace beyond compare. He could command the sick to get up from their bed and heal people. Let's just think mercantile, right? He could have sold his healing. He could have made a bundle and bought the biggest palace around. He didn't do that. 
He didn't come for his own comfort. Jesus was a sojourner like us here today. He was a foreigner and he was a traveling teacher, but he was a traveling Messiah. He was a sojourner who didn't have a home in this world. When he had homes, he had them as if they were not his. They were they were belonged to relatives, but it wasn't what he put his stock in. It isn't where he put down his roots. His roots are not in this creation. His roots are in the new creation that he would win by his sacrifice on the cross. He is the Messiah, humble and gentle and compassionate. He is exhausted at this time that he says this. These people are crowding around him. They want everything from him. And you know, he helps people. He, he, he works for people until he's exhausted. He's not standoffish. But he's not here to get rich and to put, up, put down roots and build a kingdom in this world. Too small. Too small. He came to be king of the new creation. Heavens and earth and everything created. He came to take over. That's what he took over. You just read, keep reading Matthew. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go. And you be sojourners now and make disciples of all the nations all the way to this uncharted, unimaginable place called Corvallis, Oregon. Who would have thought a place like that could lift up the name of Jesus? Well, here we are. But then there's a second guy in verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, so this is a very interesting title for this man, another disciple. So he's a follower. Disciple means student, technically. It means a student. He's following the teacher. And this is normal back then. Uh, teachers would uh, set up shop and the uh, students would come to him for often a set period of time. Sometimes they had contracts. Uh, but then they would live together and he would learn and you know they would often wander around the city and, and have uh, outdoor courses. Um, doesn't happen that way today, but this is the way it worked in Jesus' day. So another disciple came, another student. And this guy seems to make a rather important statement to Jesus and question, essentially. Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And you and I are sitting here thinking in, okay, just me. You probably already know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> but when I read this, most of the time of my life, I thought, yeah, better go bury that father because, you know, the father just died, obviously. But it turns out that's not what he's saying. What he is actually saying in a Jewish context is, let me remain at home helping my father until he dies, and then I will bury him, and then I'll come follow you. So it might be a 20-year 
gap between now and the time that this disciple is able to follow Jesus. That's possible. If you want to see this in, in Jesus' parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, there's that older son, right, who stays in the home and everything's his. That's the son who stayed to bury his father. Now, this is a part of a story from prior to the New Testament period that uh, is actually in what we call the Apocrypha. It's called Tobit. Uh, and I happen to be reading that this week. I read a lot of odd things. If you ask me if I read this book or that book, I usually don't because I'm reading a lot of other odd things. Okay? So I'm reading Tobit for another reason. And Tobit says this, there's a young man who went away and he got married and the new father-in-law made him stay for two weeks after the wedding because, you know, got to celebrate the wedding. And he really, the father-in-law really wanted the son, his name was Tobias, they, he really wanted the son to stay there and not go back to his parents. And the son says this, I have to go back. So now, quote, I fear that I may die and bring the lives of my father and mother to the grave in sorrow on my account. And they have no other son to bury them. Notice how burying your parents is of utmost concern for a son. And that's what this man is telling Jesus. Let me bury my father. Let me stay at home, be part of my father's house until he dies and I inherit and take over the house and I bury him. That is my duty as a, as a, a good son. I am to bury my, my parents. So let me do that. Honor your father and your mother. This is a good qualification, it seems like. And here's Jesus' response. 22. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I'm shocked. If this were a mere teacher, a rabbi, how could he make that demand? If he were fulfilling the teacher role that the scribe wanted, the scribe would say, honor your father and your mother. Yeah, you go. You, you bury your father. You, you go and take care of your parents that way. And Jesus says, follow me and leave the dead to bury the dead. Brothers and sisters, if it comes down to a choice of following Jesus or following your earthly obligations, you follow Jesus. This doesn't mean you dishonor your parents. I am not saying that. But this is an either-or choice with this man. Because Jesus is only there for a short time. If he was going to follow Jesus, he had to do it right then. He couldn't put it off. He couldn't add a qualification. He couldn't say, well, I have to do this first. Imagine if I became a Christian and I came to the church and I said, you know, I, I'd like to be a member of the church, but I really need to make a lot of, more, a lot of money first. And then I can be, you know, I can donate a lot of money to the church. Uh, it'll be good for the church, but it's going to take me about 20 years and I'm going to be on the road overseas most of that time. 
I'll come to Jesus when I'm done. That's what this man is saying to Jesus. I'll come to you and I will serve you when I'm done with my earthly obligations. And Jesus says, follow me. If you want to see this, you go a chapter, two chapters ahead in chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be of those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever takes up his, does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you want to know what Matthew 10 is all about, it's this guy. Adding qualifications to following Jesus where he is secondary. He's the second priority you have after the primary priority you have in this world. Brothers and sisters, there's an urgency. If you have not put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life, today is the day to do that. Do not wait. The Lord Jesus Christ offers you eternal life freely by his sacrifice. You don't earn eternal life by taking up a cross, by sacrificing for him. That is a fruit of living faith. He earned your salvation by himself taking up his cross and dying in your place. He became poor that you might become rich. He didn't have a house in this world that you might have a house in this world and live in peace in this country, in this place, and serve him with all of your heart. If you own a house, do you have to sell it in order to be Jesus' disciple? No. We're not saying that. Unless it stands between you and the Lord, that's a different, that's a different animal. So to, this is what Jesus is talking about. There's an urgency. You have to follow him. And he requires that of you. This is what he came to do. He came to call people to himself that he might heal them. He might take away their diseases. He might take away their sins. We're going to see that soon. This paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. He's going to say that. And this is what Jesus is offering. He's offering everything. He's offering you life. Life abundantly beyond any imagining. That's what he offers to people. Don't put any qualification on that. Brothers and sisters, serve him with all of your heart. Live before him as those who've been bought with a price. With those, you know, having him, you can hold your earthly possessions lightly. They're things that we use for good. But, but they don't, this is not our world. This is not where our inheritance is. That man had an inheritance on earth. 
Jesus offers an inheritance in a new creation. That's what he offers. And if you, this is what he says to you. Matthew chapter 19. I'm just sticking to Matthew now. Where he's going to develop this. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Here's what he says. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Praise God for his generosity to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son to die in our behalf, to give us eternal life, we who did not deserve it. We, O Lord, who are poor in spirit, have nothing to offer you, O Lord, but our thanks and our praise for this awesome treasure you have lavished upon us, a Savior who was devoted, dedicated, single-mindedly to go to the cross on our behalf. Nothing would turn him aside. No offers of earthly pleasure or treasures would deter him from acting like the great shepherd that he is, that he might call us by name and give us a safe place to dwell forever in your presence.